0: You know, I love talking to senior folk. By the way, is it okay if I call you senior folk? (laughs) I was trying to be PC and not say old people. (laughs) I love talking to senior folk, and the reason why I like talking to them is because they always have stories to tell, don't they? They have their best stories. I love a good story. And when you talk to them and you listen to them, you'll find that there were strategic turning points in their life, right? It's almost like they can nail it down as to when their life changed, right? There was this moment in time where they were, where they were faced with a question. Am I going to do this or am I going to do that? And as you listen to them, you find these, these little forks in the road in their life. I can look back at my own life and I can see the same kind of forks in the road. You know how we found this church? I Ever tell you how we found this church? We tried every church in Upland. We could not find a church. We went to other cities even looking for churches. You know how we found this church? My wife was taking our child for a walk one day and decided to turn left on 15th Street. And she walked by a church and she said, hey, why don't we try this church? And I said, why not? We've tried every other church. And so we came here and we never left. That was nearly 16 years ago. Do you realize that? 16 years ago. And I can look at that as a pivotal change in our life. Pivotal. You know, your response to life's situations can be pivotal to change your direction. The way you answer a question when it is faced at you, in light of the situation, how are you going to respond determines the path that you will head down. It will change your life. Let me give you a hypothetical scenario. Can I do that with you this morning? How many of you like hypotheticals? Where's Wayne Burrow? He likes hypotheticals. (laughs) That's right. I'm naming names. And I'm taking no prisoners today. (laughs) I'll give you a hypothetical scenario, okay? You're a news reporter. And you're out visiting this city. And unbeknownst to you, a flood is coming. A flood of tremendous proportion. Water begins to roll into the city. Flash floods. Mudslides. Here you are in the city. You're out on the street and you're holding on to a telephone pole and the floodwaters are rising. The mud is flowing and you look off to your right and there's Bill Clinton. You know where this is going, don't you? There's Bill Clinton and he's holding on to some backside of a car just trying to hang on and here you are this news reporter and you've got a camera around your neck so you can be time magazine pulitzer prize winning photographer right and get a picture of bill clinton going under <laughs> or you can dive in and try to save him and risk your own life and be a national hero it's a turning point in your life, isn't it? Prize winning photographer, national hero. Here's a question you gotta ask yourself, folks. Are you gonna use black and white film, or are you gonna use color film? I told my wife I was going to tell you that joke, but I wasn't sure I could recover. (laughs) Life does face us with serious questions, though, and they really are forks in the road. And last week, as we looked at Psalm 15, we saw a very serious question, did we not? It ought to be one of those questions that sort of changes your life. If you're not there already, I invite you to turn to Psalm 15 page 558 in those pew bibles. And we're going to read this psalm and I'm going to try something a little different with you. I'm not adding to the word of God here, but I'm allowing my understanding of the passage to influence how I'm going to read it to you this morning. So, I'm reading out of the New American Standard, but I am going to change the reading a little bit and I'll tell you why I'm doing that because I had the opportunity to visit the oikos groups this week, two of them, to to hear how they were processing this message. And I want to make sure that I did not miscommunicate something to you because as people begin to talk about Psalm 15, what they talk about is what does a person have to do to be in the presence of God? That's not the question you need to ask yourself. The question you need to ask yourself is what kind of person do I have to be to be in the presence of God? This is not a checklist. It's not a grocery list. The answer to this question comes in a series of adjectives would describe what kind of person can remain in god's presence so as we look at this psalm and as we read it together i'm going to just nuance it a little bit okay just understand that verses two through five are are descriptive of what kind of person okay psalm 15 verse one this is by the way a psalm of david and by the way, I don't know if I've told you this before. I think I have. But when you see a psalm of David or you see a prayer of David or for the choir director, a psalm of David, that's part of Scripture. That was not added there by, by people who translated the Bible. That is part of verse 1. Okay? So, so as you read this, we know this is a psalm of David because it's part of verse 1. It tells us that. And uh, chapter 15, verse 1, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? What kind of person can be your house guest and live? The answer comes, it's the one walking with integrity, the one working righteousness, the one speaking truth in his heart, the one that does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. The one in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. The one who honors those who fear God or the Lord. The one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. The one who does not put out his money at interest. The one who does not take a bribe against the innocent. The one who does these things, the one who reflects the character of God, that one will never be shaken. That's how we need to understand this psalm this morning. It's describing what kind of person. This is about sanctification, not salvation. This is not a checklist for you to go through and say, got that one, got that one, got that one. And if I've got all of these, then I'm good because that's not what it's talking about. This is talking about the kind of person who fundamentally has been changed internally and therefore reflects the character of God outwardly. That's what we're talking about. This is a changed person. So as I said last week, what we're going to do with Psalm 15 here is this is the 11-part answer to the question, what kind of person can abide with God? And what I've done is I've taken those areas and I've grouped them together and these statements, and there's four areas of life, right? It's a person's walk, it's their witness, it's their wisdom, and it's their wealth. These areas of life need to reflect the character of God in order for a person to abide in God's presence. That's what the psalmist is saying here. So, look back at the question with me. Last week we said, who may sojourn in God's tent? Who may dwell on His holy hill? In other words, what kind of person? Who can be God's houseguest? That is the question, and that is an often missed question that people don't ask. But I think it's very poignant for our day. As I said last week, we live in the backwash of easy believism. People think they can profess God and never change. And that is just not true. It is just not true. Double questions like this, we said last week, are, are rare in Scripture. And when they do occur, it ought to draw your attention to it pretty significantly. This is a double question. It's not just a singular one. And, and as I said last week, in, in answering this question, David compressed the 613 commands of the Mosaic Law, and he scrunched them down to 11 essential components here in this psalm what he felt were 11 essential components under the spirit's guidance the the hebrews believed that isaiah took that a step further in in isaiah 33 i believe it's verses 14 and 15 he scrunched them down to six requirements six and then from there micah took them in micah 6 8 and he reduced them down to three. Until we get to Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 2.4, he scrunches those down to just one essential element. And that is that a person have faith in God. It is a person who walks and lives by their faith. The, the righteous shall live by their faith. So what kind of person may dwell in the presence of God? It's one who lives by their faith. And their faith is reflected in these areas of life. So, the first area we said last week in verse 2, the first area was your walk, right? And we said last week, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, all combined express the totality of a person's walk with God, their relationship with God, the, the conduct of their lifestyle. These uh, three statements, the reason I translated them with ing words is because that's what they are. It's the one walking with integrity, the one working righteousness, and the one speaking truth in his heart. Literally, the one doing righteousness. And, and they describe the man, not the activity. They describe the man. They're adjectives, they're descriptive of him. And so we summarized it this way. For you out there, what do you need to get out of this? What's important to God? Well, it's the manner of your walk. It's the merit of your work. And it's the motives of your will. These things combined express the totality of your walk with God. These areas display faith. So truly knowing God, we said last week, must fundamentally change a person. They will reflect the character of God because they want to imitate their Heavenly Father. And that requirement, beloved, is not just an Old Testament requirement. We said last week it's a New Testament requirement too. You look at the book of Ephesians and you look at chapter 4 and you see walk, walk, walk over and over again. The Apostle Paul picking up on this theme. We are to walk in unity. We are to walk in love. We are to walk in the light, right? We are to walk in wisdom over and over again. The Apostle Paul uses that expression. This is not simply an Old Testament concept. Your walk needs to reflect your faith if you are to remain in the presence of God. The second area of life we talked about last week was your witness. Right? Verse 3. Three times the word not is used in verse 3. And we, we said that the reason for that is because it's not only characterized what a person is in verse 2. A person of faith is these things. But a person of faith does not do these things. Okay, And the two of those verses combined express the totality of a person's walk with Christ. It's not only what they do that communicates what they believe. It's what they abstain from as well so verse 3 a believer does not slander with his tongue he does not do evil to his neighbor nor does he take up a reproach against their friends it's talking about their witness and we summarized it this way their tongue their temper and their testimony all reflect a person's faith in god So when you look at verse two and you look at verse three and you have the positive statements and the negative statements, the two are combined to show you and to try to emphasize the fact that what it's looking at is complete sanctification and not just partial. We cannot cut it off and just say, I only need to do these things, but completely neglect everything else. That was implicit even in the Ten Commandments. You know, we post the Ten Commandments and we go around and we talk to people and we ask them, do you believe in God? Well, yes, I've never murdered anybody. I've never stolen anything. I don't take the Lord's name in vain. Yes, you haven't, if I could say it this way, you haven't not done those things. But have you done the other side of that? Have you done the flip side, the positive righteousness? Have you loved your neighbor as yourself? Not just have you abstained from murdering him. Big deal. Everybody does that. Have you loved him as yourself? That's the requirement of the law. See, we, we miss that. It's not just don't commit adultery. It's what? Have you loved your wife? Have you loved your husband? The way God has shown love to you. See? See? Your public witness demonstrates to the world around you what you believe about God. So in light of this truth, we need to restrain ourselves from gossip, from criticism, and your witness needs to reflect God's character. Today, I want to have you look at verse 4. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised. But who honors those who fear the Lord, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Verse 4 is a difficult, difficult section, but we call this your wisdom. Faith determines the wisdom that one applies to life. And in particular, the righteous reflect wisdom in three areas. If you look back at the verse with me, we summarize it this way. A person of faith rejects, Reprobates. He rejects reprobates. He regards the righteous. And he refuses to renege. This is how a person of faith exercises their wisdom in life. They don't hang around with evildoers. They do honor those who fear God. And they never ever break their word. They keep their word no matter what it costs them. And so a person of faith. As I said, the the first two lines here, verse four, are two sides of the same coin. You don't hang out with evildoers, but you do honor those who fear the Lord. They're sort of two sides of the same coin. This is a this is a difficult phrase. I struggled with this all week. I I spent hours and hours trying to get my arms around this because literally in the Hebrew uh This idea of rejecting the reprobates, it says, despised in his eyes is a rejected one. Despised in his eyes is a rejected one. The Hebrew term is nimas here, and what it means is a rejected one. It's somebody whom God has actually rejected because of the sin in their lives. They are a reprobate who has been given over to condemnation. It's a scary thing because what's being talked about here is not the fact that this person doesn't just associate with evil, it's that he doesn't associate with evildoers. It's the people. The people that are rejected by God. The righteous reject reprobates. That's what this passage is saying. And this idea here of of being despised in his eyes. It could be translated disdained or, or contemptible or despicable. He's, he's despised in his eyes. These people do not sin in ignorance. They sin willfully and knowingly. They rebel and they shake their fist in the face of God. They want nothing to do with God or His Word. They do not sin in ignorance. They're fully committed to sinning despite their knowledge of the truth. That's what we're talking about here. So those who are committed to God, who are walking in the faith, do not just reject evil, they reject evildoers. That's the point. Their life reflects everything that God hates. This probably raises all sorts of questions in your mind. I, I can see the wheels turning now. God doesn't hate anyone, does He? God doesn't hate anyone, does He? Aren't we supposed to love everyone? Jesus shared the Gospel with sinners, right? Are you saying that these people are are beyond the grace of God? Is that what we're saying? Well, let me just clarify some things here. Jesus never entered into the sin of sinners. He offered them the grace of God. He offered them a way of forgiveness, a way out of their sin, but He never, ever participated in their sin. He called them to repentance and faith, but never, ever did He approve of their lifestyle. Just be clear about that. Romans 1. Pastor David has been teaching us through the book of Romans. You remember Romans 1. The deep, dark descent of man, right? Into depravity. And what do we see there? We see three times it says that God gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over to the lusts and desires of the heart until their sin led them straight to condemnation. It's a scary thing. It's a scary thing for us to think about that, that there is somebody who is beyond the grace of God. Psalm 14. Look just one psalm above this. The reason they've buckled Psalm 14 and Psalm 15 together is because Psalm 14 describes the way of the wicked. Psalm 15 describes the way of the righteous. The fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. It's not that God doesn't exist. I refuse to submit to Him. I'm saying He's not there. And God, ironically in the psalm, is looking down upon humanity and He's saying, hey, the joke's on you because I've surveyed humanity and I'm looking for a good person and I can't find a single one down there. Now you may sit down there in your puniness and tell me I don't exist. But the reality is there isn't a good one of you that exists. And none of you can be in my presence apart from my grace. Psalm 15, buckled next to that, this is a saved person. This is what their life looks like. This is it. They're placed together for a reason. You know, the best I I labored over this. The best thought I could give you, the best illustration of this is false teachers in the New Testament. You have it there in your handout. I didn't want to read off all these references, but I've piled them up there for you. But, But look at this. I mean, 2 John says you are not even to invite them into your house. You are not to greet them. If you greet them, you participate in their evil. That's what 2 John says. That's how you are to treat false teachers. You don't even greet them. False teachers in the New Testament, I've given you this list here, they denied that Jesus was the Christ. They denied that Jesus came in the flesh. They denied their own sinfulness. They denied salvation through Christ. They denied righteous conduct. They denied brotherly love. They opposed apostolic authority, they advocated sensuality, they were arrogant, they were greedy for gain, and they blasphemed angelic beings. So Second Peter 2: 1 through3 tells us that these people are doomed to destruction. That is their fate that awaits them. Irenaeus records for us in his book Against Heresies that the Apostle John went to a public bathhouse at one point in the first century. And as he walked into the bathhouse, there was this famous heretic in there named Serinthus. And he saw him, and when, when John laid his eyes on him, it says immediately he rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing, shouting, Let us flee, lest the bathhouse fall down. For Serinthus, the enemy of truth, is within. This is who? This is John, the apostle of love. He despised reprobates. John's disciple was no different. Polycarp? You've heard of Polycarp? It says he had, he had the, sort of the same approach. He encountered the well-known heretic Martian one day, and Marcion was a guy that, that was taking pieces of the Scriptures and throwing them out. He was discounting Scripture. And Marcion asked Polycarp one day, he says, do you know who I am? And here's Polycarp's response. Polycarp's response. He says, I do know you. You're the firstborn of Satan. That's delicate, isn't it? How to make friends and influence people. This is difficult for us because we want to believe in our heart that there's nobody beyond the grace of God, right? I do. I do. This is hard for me. But I think the answer is this, beloved since we cannot peer into the mysteries of God, we have no idea who God's elect are. I think the only thing we can say is that we're safe to reject those who are condemned by Scripture. We don't have to condemn anybody. The Scripture does it for us. If they want to make a ruin of their life, if they want to reject God and His truth, I'm not condemning anybody. They're doing it to themselves. And they are therefore reprobates. A person of faith exercises wisdom. Specifically, they despise evildoers. They regard the righteous. And this line, as I said, there are two sides of the same point, and it's, it's meant to give you a sharp contrast. It, it's meant to divide it. And it clearly draws a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous hate those whom God hates And they honor those who fear God. The bottom line on this is it it, it means that they embrace God's standards of character. They embrace it. Again, the Proverbs paint for us a picture of guilt by association. Right? There are the righteous who are on top of the roofs shouting out truth. Right. And wisdom. Wisdom calls from the rooftops. But but the evildoers, they they lie in wait to ensnare people, to trap them. Right. It's the woman of folly who who invites you in and says, come to my house. Come on in. There's a banquet in here. And you come in and there's a bunch of dead guys sitting around the dining room table. Right. Skeletons with cobwebs hanging. It reminds me of Pirates of the Caribbean or something. Right? Her steps lead down to Sheol. She's a harlot. Don't go into her. It's a war. It's a war. And we ought to think of it as a war. We ought to think that there are souls of men and women that are hanging in the balance. They're either given over to wickedness or they're given over to righteousness. A righteous person associates themselves with those who fear God. Why? Because the fear of God is what? It's the beginning of wisdom. We're talking about wisdom here. We're talking about the wisdom of the righteous. Third, he refuses to renege back in verse 4 again. It says he swears to his own hurt and does not change. The third line here means that a righteous person will keep his word despite the pain that it will cause him to do so. If he gives his word, he will not take it back. He will not renege on it. He will not break his oath or his vow or we might say his promise. The idea of swearing here is making a vow or entering into a covenant. We would say a promise. You give somebody your word, you keep it. That's what it's saying. God takes vows very seriously. This is reflective, again, of God's character. Why does a person keep his word? Because it reflects God's character. You'll remember the Old Testament story in 2 Samuel 21, remember? When they were coming into the land, Joshua made a covenant with the Gibeonites. you remember this? Well, Saul broke that covenant with the Gibeonites. And he killed several of them. And because of that, God sent a three-year famine on the nation. When they went to God and asked him why this famine is here, God told him why. Because Saul broke that covenant that Joshua had made. And the only way to stop the, the famine was that seven of Saul's sons were executed. God takes vows very, very seriously. Jesus took this even a step further. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? What did He say? Let your yes be and your no why because anything more than that is of evil you give somebody your word you keep it no matter what it costs you if you give somebody your word you keep it a person of faith exercises wisdom by keeping their word biblical wisdom is not the attainment of knowledge it's the application of knowledge Say that again. Biblical wisdom is not the attainment of knowledge. It's the application of knowledge. It's how you live your life in light of the truth that you know about God. You live your life like a skilled craftsman. Psalm 90. Or Ecclesiastes 12, 13-14. Turn to Proverbs chapter 2. Just look at verse 6. I just want to look at a few verses here. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, page 642 in those pew Bibles, if you have one of those. It says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course for wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will guard you. Understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of righteousness to walk in the ways of darkness, who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil. Whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. We need biblical wisdom, beloved. We need to not be drawn in to evil. We need God's wisdom. Let me tell you, haven't mentioned it earlier, but there is a rare opportunity here for you right now in this church. The wisest person in this congregation that I would consider, Pastor David, is teaching a class on the Proverbs. And he's taking the Proverbs statements and he's compressing them down to to bring them updated to, to life today. These principles that apply to everybody's lives today. I want to tell you, I'm surprised that not all of you are taking the class We need wisdom, and we need massive quantities of it. It's not knowledge. It's the application of what we know to be true about God. We need wisdom, right? Right? So you're going to sign up tomorrow, right? This is a rare opportunity, beloved. I'm taking the class. I'm taking the class. I need wisdom. Let me just speak to some of you college-age students for a moment. Yes, I'm I'm taking no prisoners. You college-age students, you know, there... I'll just say it. There is a certain level of arrogance that attends college-age students. There is a level of arrogance. Here's a man... Pastor David, who has been in ministry for, I don't know, 30 years, he's been through seminary, he's studied all the doctrines of the Bible, he is our pastor, right? He is a man of God. And yet the college-age students, you want to come here and you want to argue our doctrinal statement with him. I don't understand that. The doctrinal statement is not up for grabs. It is what we believe at this church. And you can either come under the leadership of this church and submit to the wisdom of the elders, or you can argue and you can make a shipwreck of your faith. You know, Proverbs says there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. You know what they are? The very first one is somebody with what? Haughty eyes. Arrogant. You know what the last one is? It's a person who stirs up strife and who is divisive. These are things that God considers an abomination. You need wisdom. You need wisdom to navigate the waters of life. I would encourage you to take that class. your walk, your witness, your wisdom, they all reflect your faith in God. Fourth, your wealth, verse 5. It says he does not put out his money in interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. In other words, This person has a deep sense of integrity that is not determined by their wallet. Their integrity is not determined by their wallet. The interesting thing about this in the Hebrew, the word silver is moved forward for emphasis. And it literally says, silver, not he gives with interest, and a bribe against the innocent, not he takes. They've intentionally use two words that are complete opposites, give and take. This is all about the giving and taking of wealth and how your heart attitude is regarding wealth. He does not give wrongly, nor does he take wrongly in regards to his wealth. So I've summarized it this way. He gives freely and he gains honestly. He gives freely and he gains honestly. Verse 1, verse 5 there, he does not put out or give his money at interest. The word interest here is the idea of usury. It was a common practice in those days to charge high interest on business loans. So, according to Israelite law, the loaner was not to take advantage of those who were less fortunate, those who had financial difficulties. There were laws against such things. So, the poor people of the day, at times, they needed to take out loans to keep themselves from being sold into slavery or their family members. And oftentimes, the people that loaned out the money would charge 50% interest. Can you imagine that? You think your credit cards are bad. 50% interest. That, What does that do? That drives the poor person further and further and further into debt to the point where they're forced to sell off part of their family. So the opposite was true of a believer. They're generous. They're generous with their wealth. They give it out freely. They're not concerned with making a profit. They don't don't care about that. I think of Boaz in the book of Ruth as a perfect example of this. Right? Don't just just let them glean in the corners of the field. Bundle some of that up and give them some. Secondly, he gains honestly. It says a bribe against the innocent, not he takes. In the same respects as usury, bribes were prohibited by law too. And the, the reason for that is that they were much more easily afforded by rich people. Right? Rich people could pay off those in power. And so they could get whatever they wanted. So again, you have this class division where the poor were compromised by the justice of the system. Injustice was dealt to the poor all the time. They were taken advantage of. Just before the Babylonian captivity, Habakkuk, remember? Habakkuk pleading with God in the first few verses of that book, Lord, why why are the righteous treated this way? Why, Why are they oppressed by those in power? Why are they taken advantage of? And God's answer was, yeah, I know justice is being perverted, but I'm about to execute justice and I'm going to send the Chaldeans over to chastise the whole nation. And (laughs) Habakkuk says, wait a minute, time out. That was not what I had in mind. Could we just maybe take down the corrupt leadership and, and do this a little different? No, the nation is circling the drain. Corruption is at every level. It needs to be cleaned like a dish. One author said this, usury is the daughter of oppression and the sister of idolatry. God's people are to put God and people before money. You cannot serve both God and mammon. The old translation said, right? Money. So the bottom line on this is the dispossession of a person's heart. If you're looking to make a financial killing by stepping on people on the way to the up the corporate ladder and not worrying about those who are less fortunate than you, then, then you are not reflecting the character of God. Greedy people do that. People who are greedy for gain, people who serve the God of money do that. So, so God cares little about money, but what he does care about is your attitude toward money. He cares about your attitude toward innocent and poor people that's the point god's heart is for the widows and the orphans god cares for those that are downtrodden so do you want to climb the corporate ladder at any cost you want to be a landowner you want to be a property owner or do you want to be a slum lord because that's what we're talking about here we're talking about taking advantage of the poor in order to make a killing financially And God says that people of faith don't do such things. The answer to these types of questions, beloved, reflect your faith in God. This last phrase in verse 5, I was holding off on this. This is somewhat of a separate category here, but I believe it it, it covers the entire psalm, not just this last verse. And that is, it's meant to bring balance to this. A righteous person gives freely, he gains honestly, and you could say he rests securely. So it's it's three more statements here that sort of go together. Uh, The word not, like verse 3, occurs three times in this verse for balance, but the beauty of Hebrew poetry is that they've, They've broken the last one off. And even though it's got the knot in it, it's a different category. And so it sets it off as, as a promise. So, so in other words, not he puts out his money at interest, not he takes a bribe against the innocent, not he will ever be shaken. Ever. The emphasis here in the Hebrew is never ever. The one who does these things never ever will be shaken. Why? Because this person is reflecting the changed heart inwardly. His life reflects his love of God. So why are they never shaken? Because they're saved. They're saved. And the proof is that they can take stock in the fact that their life reflects the character of God. See, God promised to change us, didn't he? Didn't he? Are you being changed? Or are you the same person as when you came to Christ? If you are, then you ought to be asking yourselves some serious questions. You know, just let me say this. If we do fall off the wagon here, if we do sin, the beauty of being in Christ is that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is our propitiation, right? So if you do sin, being in Christ, praise God, you're covered. But your life ought to begin to reflect the character of God. Your walk, your witness, your wisdom, and your wealth, they all should reflect the character of God. So what kind of person does it take to abide in the presence of God? Let me ask you a second question this morning. Am I that kind of person? That's what you need to ask yourself this morning. Am I that kind of person that reflects the character of God? See, you do reflect the character of God one way or another. You do reflect who your father is, I should say. The question is, who is your father? Who's your father? Is it God or is it Satan? It's one or the other. You either reflect the character of God or you reflect the character of the prince of this world. That is Satan. And the way you live your life, Displays what you believe in your heart. Do you walk in integrity? Do you do righteousness? Does your faith and your walk reflect your faith in God? Does your witness reflect your faith in God? Does your wisdom reflect your faith in God? Does your wealth reflect your faith in God? See, in the end, it will not be me that evaluates you. In the end, you will stand before God and he will say, unless I'm mistaken, and I'm never mistaken, I don't believe we've met. The question you need to ask yourself is if somebody wanted to convict you And I know you've probably heard this before, but if somebody wanted to convict you of being a Christian, do you think they could find enough evidence to do so? Could they follow you around and gather evidence from your life and say, yes, this person is a Christian? I can tell. You need to ask yourself these questions, beloved. Do you reflect the character of God in every area of your life? Is your life consecrated to God? Let's pray. Our Father, this is a, a heavy psalm this morning. This is hard words for all of us. And we pray that your Spirit would enable us Father, not to try to fulfill these things in the flesh, but to walk in the Spirit. Father, please help us to exude our faith in Christ. That every area of our life would be consecrated to you, our Father. That we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That others might be drawn to Christ through our life. Father, that they would see something in us that is different than the world around Father, we all want that in this room. We even profess that in this room, but, but so often we make no changes to that end. Father, we pray for your enablement to do so. And again, not in the flesh, Father, not in some way that we can check off a grocery list, but our Father, we want our lives to reflect your character. As beloved children, we want to reflect the character of our Father. Father, may you grant us the grace to do so this day. And throughout this week, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.